Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio Podcast. This is episode eight, and I have brought back James Alfred. Uh, we're going to talk about social engineering and the music industry and Hollywood and how all these things connect to governance, the government, the White House, the royal family. There is no separating the entertainment industry on any level from how this world is governed. Um, this will be the last episode where the audio quality is what you're hearing now. Um, I will be improving how I'm doing this. I've had to use free tools up to now, um, and I've had some people give me some tools uh, that should improve the audio quality. Um, this is the first hour. The second hour will be available to everybody on crow777radio.com. And I would warn everyone, and organized TAC has been levied against me, uh, crow777.com, just my name.com, has been taken over by people flying Baphomet, Satanic, and uh, Masonic colors. Uh, I'm not the only one they're doing this to, and we have tracked them. It is an organized attack coming out from outside the country. So my podcast that carries the second hour of this episode is https://crow777radio.com. In the second hour, we're going to cover the following things. The music industry PSYOP, military-industrial complex, the CIA, Woodstock, Laurel Canyon, the Monterey Pop Festival, Charles Manson murder hoax, hoax murders, the planned and executed hip, hippie movement designed to control a generation, Frank Zappa, the birds, the Beatles, the constructed hippie movement, spellcraft, public manipulation, the mind weapon, the O.J. Simpson hoax murder trial, Dennis Wilson, the Beach Boys, the reason for hoax events, how the world is governed with hoax news, Nixon, the Kent State shooting hoax, rock stars and hoaxes, the connection between Hollywood, the White House, and the music industry, Sharon Tate, Roman Polanski, the Altamont murder hoax that the Rolling Stones put on after Woodstock, rock star relationship to the military-industrial complex and royalty and the bloodlines that are entertainment, Ronald Reagan, the first open actor president, Jimmy Stewart, a general in the USAF, Jim Morrison's father of the Doors who started the Vietnam War, um, all the rock stars that just happened to be at Altamont shootings, uh, Joe Walsh, Chrissy Hine from the Pretenders, and members of the band Devo, um, how information is king, and corporate data control. There's a lot, lot more, you know, occult magic, corporate malfeasance. It goes on and on. It's a hell of an episode. And again, this will be the last episode where the audio quality is just passable. From here on in, it'll get better. So let's jump in. Here we go. Cheers. All right. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio Podcast. This is episode number eight, and I have brought James Alfred back um, to help me kind of keep some system, you know, in a systematic way, get our arms around what we're going to cover today. Uh, it's a pretty telling, distinct bunch of information that we're going to throw at you. And basically what it comes down to is we're going to demonstrate to you that the military industrial complex, the CIA, and basically the same controlling systems that we see and talk about on this show a lot were the whole reason for the beginning of early rock and roll, the hippie movement, uh, the rock music of the 60s, and even Woodstock, uh, all just kind of a conglomeration of staged pre-planned events. So with that, uh, welcome aboard, James. Uh, thanks, Crow, for having me back. Looking hey, forward no, to this. Pr no problem. Let's quickly clue people in so they remember who you are. You were on a little while ago, but go ahead and intro yourself and what you've been working on. 
Sure. Uh, just a more or less kind of an armchair uh, uh, researcher. Initially got involved with some of this material when the idea of the lunar wave was attached to the uh, enigma named Hattie Bow. And as we've discussed in previous episodes, a lot of questions and, you know, whether or not that's disinformation and so forth. But initially got involved with that. Uh, and then slowly but surely have just been kind of pursuing different paths of research uh, in respect to the, the moon, into alchemy, uh, cultism, all, all that interesting stuff. So, uh, yeah, it kind of brings me back to a conversation we're going to have today. Yeah, so what I did is I asked James um, to vet some of the material that we're going to go over here, and I'm hoping that he can kind of drive this conversation in an orderly manner uh, because he's got a very analytical mind where I'm much more abstract and uh, it's good to have someone like James around because I would wander off in every direction. But to be very clear to people, uh, what we're going to talk about here and what we're going to demonstrate is just the complete precognition of the things that we think are just history that happened because it happened. Um, this is not the case. These events were planned. The people who were involved were part and parcel of what I call fraud. Uh, the military-industrial complex clearly plays into this, and we'll draw lines from some of our favorite rock stars uh, back into their parents and before that to demonstrate that they're all coming from military backgrounds, uh, many of them in the uh, – secret service or intelligence areas. Um, but before we get started here, uh, people can read up on what we're going to talk about, but here's my problem. A lot of the people who have done research into the things that we're going to cover here, one of the things, uh, a guy did a lot of research on Laurel Canyon. Uh, do you remember the name of the, the book that he did? Uh, yeah, it was uh, David McGowan, uh, his excellent book, uh, something about the the mysterious Laurel Canyon. I'm, I'm butchering it, but the author's name is uh, David McGowan, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners are familiar with his work. Right. So, I mean, if you did a search for McGowan and Laurel Canyon, you would come across his work. And he's not the only one that's done done this. But to jump back, my problem is this. While we vetted uh, a lot of the information that we're going to use here, and part of it was sourced from, you know, all over the place, McGowan was some of the source. Um, these people don't get it quite right in my book in that they are under the impression that the murders that are presented in, in history, like the Manson murders, um, they act like those are real savage murders, that the deaths that we talk about are real. And I maintain that while people do die and murders do occur, for the most part in these historical accounts, nobody is dying, nobody is getting hurt. And people are dying by the numbers. As an example, in the material that we're going to cover, uh, a lot of people died on October 12th. Well, anyone who's done any occult research understands that that's Aleister Crowley's birthday. So the idea that, you know, 10 or 15 people happen to check out all in, you know, show business and rock on this day is ludicrous. It's all coding uh, to this kind of occult game that's being played. But <clears throat> before we jump in here, I want everyone to be completely clear that what we're talking about did not end in the 60s or the 70s or the 80s or the 90s. It is still going on now, and we see it in recent events like the death of David Bowie and the death of Prince. And we will use Prince as an example here. Uh, I recently sat down and forced myself to watch the 2016 Hall of Fame uh, induction ceremony. And funny enough, the first induction of that show was Deep Purple, and this is on the tale of Prince. And Lars 
Ulrich of Metallica fame and the guy who was involved in all that silliness with Napster, which was all staged events, um, he came out wearing a purple jacket and took it off to show everyone that it was in fact labeled Deep Purple. This was all echoing the the death of Prince. And um, while I won't go into how the color purple has been echoed across all media, I will give a couple examples here. Um, The Queen of England, who seems to be the head of a lot of what goes on, or people are reporting to her or the royal family in some way, recently uh, had a new logo made, and it was purple all of a sudden right around the death of Prince. But really, what really tops it off is there was a beer released, a beer that you drink released on the day that Prince died called Purple Rain. Uh, it had been in the planning for a while, and the word rain was not spelled like R-A-I-N. It's like the reign of a king, and it was released, so you can see what's going on here. But what really kind of stuck out in my mind as I watched the 2016 induction was in the middle of all these kind of Hollywood entertainment ceremonies they always have in memoriam so that they can drive death home into the minds of all the people so that we can all buy into the fact that we all need to die by the time we're about 74 but they listed bowie they listed a bunch of people but they did not list prince at the end of the 2016 hall of fame induction they closed with a prince clip of him playing uh Guitar Gently Weeps at a previous induction, which I believe was for one of the Beatles, uh, probably George Harrison or something. I don't remember. But this print echo and the color purple was just shot out across all media to do the spell casting that was all derived around the hoax death of Prince. Um, and to take it a bit further, the day that Prince died, I think I was aware of it pretty early in the day. But within about five minutes of the news announcing that Prince had supposedly died, the Google, the global or the worldwide Google logo had already changed over to Purple Rain. So you can see the kind of spellcraft and game that's going on. And even there are channels out there on YouTube that covered how the Obamas were wearing purple right in the vicinity of the death of Prince. Of course, Obama talked about him, and uh, there's been a lot of insight about how the political game here is blue and red in the United States, but where those two colors meet is purple. But anyhow, let's jump back over. I just wanted to demonstrate to you that the kind of occult spellcraft that goes on around all these famous entertainers is as alive today as it ever was. So I'm going to throw it back over to you, James, and we can kind of I'll let you lead us into this because there is just so much to cover. Yeah, there's a lot. Um, and we had kind of briefly talked about this when we were talking about the uh, the idea of there being a fake Paul McCartney. And uh, in one of the articles I put together, there's a curious moment where David Crosby pops into a Beatles uh, press conference in L.A. And I want to say that's like mid-1966 where there's a lot of odd things happening with the Beatles and so forth. So that's more or less how we kind of got into the conversation of Laurel Canyon. You had given me some articles to go over um, right. and everything. It was fascinating. So, yeah, jumping back to the, the Laurel Canyon, I thought it was, uh, personally, I think it's interesting to kind of put what else was going on in the world at that time, that being the uh, this, the beginning of the conflict in Vietnam. Uh, just quickly to give people kind of a high level of what's going on politically and the geo political arena uh there's the famous gulf of tonkin false flag attack that occurred in early august of 1964 uh interesting enough and we'll go back to this jim morrison's father happened to be the admiral of uh, one of the ships that 
took part in the Gulf of Tonkin false flag incident. Um, and I think at this point, it's pretty clear that it, it is a false flag incident. I believe it, it's, even- yeah, it's been all but admitted, but everyone realizes that uh, the claim that these U.S. warships had been attacked in the Gulf of Tonkin was an all-out lie, and I think there were actually two events. Um, history records it as, in fact, a false flag now, but maybe not in so many words. But Morrison's father was an admiral. He wasn't just a guy on the scene. He was the guy on the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you, you can go ahead and carry it forward, but I, I think the name of the ship he was on, was it the Bonham Richard? Yes, I think yeah. that's the name of it, yes. A- anyhow, there's a, 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 a historical echoes around that ship name go back in time. Go, go ahead, James. Sure. And then, uh, so basically, again, you have a false flag that immediately allows Congress to pass what is called the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. This ultimately gives uh, President Johnson, for the first time um, officially, uh, the ability to fund an all-out war against the North Vietnamese without a proper declaration of war from Congress. Uh, beginning in February of 1965, uh, Operation Rolling Thunder commences. That was a series of aerial bombardments of North Korea. Um, and that began in early 65. Uh, according to officially, uh, of course, most of us probably are aware that there were troops unofficially in South Vietnam, North Vietnam, at the early part of the 1960s. But by March of 1965, the first U.S. soldiers are officially placed in South Vietnam. Uh, by the end of 1965, over 200,000 U.S. soldiers are sent to Vietnam. So you can see there's quite a progression there going from August, the false flag, to the end of 1965. You suddenly have 200,000 uh, kids uh, running around in South Vietnam. Right. Uh, and, and so just just to make it perfectly clear why we're giving uh, the historical um, kind of wiki entry on mm-hmm. on what was going on or what the press claims was going on. Uh, for my money, I don't I think that most wars um, are mostly marketing and it's hard to tell what actually really goes on. Uh, although I did have relatives in Vietnam, there was clearly something going on there. Tell them. Uh, what we're correlating the year 1965 to as sure. we move forward. Sure. So 1965 is key. That's when uh, the beginning of the anti-war movement starts across multiple universities uh, in the United States of America and quite a concentration of anti-war activity in uh, UC Berkeley uh, in the 1965 period. So now you've got anti-war sentiments in California. Uh, it's at that point in time the idea of Laurel Canyon pops up. So we've had the Beatles uh, who broke the United States, I think, February 1964. And suddenly there's an emerging rock and roll community in uh, Los Angeles in a small uh, neighborhood called Laurel Canyon. And that begins uh, late 1964 and leads into 1965. So, uh, Right. And, and we should state um, almost all the big names from the 60s, with very few exceptions, are going to come through this Laurel Canyon area. Mm-hmm. And the strange thing that really will grab most people is that there was no music industry on the West Coast to speak of when all these people just for some reason showed up in Laurel Canyon and decided they were going to be rock stars and invent mm-hmm. the hippie movement and invent rock and roll. But what's stranger yet is that many of these people are rich these supposed early hippies, um, like uh, Crosby as an example, mm-hmm. his early band is called Jet Set, which kind of reflects what we're talking about here. And he's filthy riff, rich from the from the get go, and we'll get a little into his, um, uh, you know, his family tree, which goes all the way back to the founding fathers. Mm-hmm. But uh, just to make it perfectly clear, the music industry is a pretty big deal in New York. 
in Memphis and in Nashville. And on the West Coast, there's really not much to speak of yet. Here come all these assets, uh, all the children of military people. So go ahead, James, take it forward. Yes, definitely. So uh, the, basically uh, what happens in 1964, the birds are created at that point, And the birds are ultimately a proto-type monkeys-style band. It's a band that allegedly was two individuals who had some music talent that were highlighting the folk music scene on Sunset Strip. David Crosby comes along. Uh, officially, he just watched A Hard Day's Night or something of the sort, and suddenly he wants to be in a rock band. So by the end of 1964, this group of five musicians, uh, one of which was Chris Hillman. He was a kind of a virtuoso uh, mandolin player, I believe, gets put into this band and is required to play the bass guitar. Uh, had no experience before that. They have a drummer who's considered a handsome or cute for the, the teen girls, never played drums before he's placed in this band. So by 1964, they get hooked up with a Bob Dylan song called Mr. Tambourine Man. That's released as a single, end of 64. And then we go into 1965, where on 1965, the summer solstice, uh, the birds released their first album, Mr. Tambourine Man. And you had some ideas on the importance of that date. Yeah. Um, well, there's a couple things that come out of the birds there. And the first thing we should mention is that the birds, which clearly none of these guys really had any musical talent. So how they were showing up at this place that had no musical industry to form a rock band mm -hmm. that was instantly getting signed and making albums. But uh, as he points out, uh, there's there's two songs that come out of the birds early on. One is Turn, Turn, Turn. The other one is Tambourine Man. Um, both of these are kind of timed with solstices and equinoxes. And the funny thing about um, Turn, Turn, Turn is it was written by Pete Seeger. Now, I know something about Pete Seeger because he lives in literally in the neighborhood where I've moved, not in my neighborhood. The next township over, which is a little bit richer, uh, quite a bit richer than where I live, uh, Pete Seeger was out there in a place called Little Compton. And we used to go – uh, in the summer times to see him and his uh, grandson perform. But Pete Seeger wrote the song Turn, Turn, Turn. And so much of what we talk about on this podcast relates back to Jewishness and the kind of ruling class. This song is no exception. Um, Pete Seeger writes it. For some reason, it's given to the birds. The birds get a hit, and its lyrics are drawn from the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, which is Latin for... I guess it's supposed to mean gatherer or traditionally teacher or preacher. And it talks about the very things that we are talking about in the release dates when things are released at the winter solstice or the spring equinox. And in some cases, a song will be released near the, the, the solstice in the United States, but held and released like in London near the equinox. And here is the song, Everything Has Its Season, Turn, 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 which is echoing what they're actually doing with the song. And as far as the uh, tambourine man goes, I'm going to have to think for a minute. I know you asked mm -hmm. me flat out, but I've forgotten exactly what I had uh, researched on that. So I'll get back to that. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. So so here we go. We've got uh, this answer to the Beatles, the birds, uh, fabricated band already uh, on Life magazine. This this group has maybe performed for a couple months, getting national attention they're being placed into Sunset Strip Clubs that have some potential uh, intelligence agency backing, uh, some kind of questionable financing, uh, questionable 
management and so forth. Next album that really rolls out of this time period then is The Mamas and the Papas. The album is called If You Can Believe Your Eyes and Ears, uh, <laughs> which was you had commented was an interesting title for another made-up band that popped out of nowheres. Uh, right. I mean, when you start to consider the things that we're going to bring up here, you will begin to look at the names of songs, the names of albums in a whole different way. And as an example of this, keep in mind the band The Pretenders. Uh, when we're done with this, you will probably look at the name of that band in a whole other way. Um, and I'm sorry about Tambourine Man. What The only thing I can recall right now before we jump forward mm-hmm. is that I believe it was written by Bob Dylan uh, it was, yes. in the same year or very near and for some reason and just handed off to this new band that was instantly signed to a record label, um, and then it was released on the summer solstice. Um, and Tambourine Man being released on the sol- summer solstice is playing on this occult idea of when the sun is at the height of its power. But sorry, I backtracked a little bit there. Uh, oh, no problem. Yeah, go ahead. No problem. Well, the interesting guy out of the Mamas and Papas, of course, was that John Phillips, Another musician who has strong U.S. Marine Corps military ties. His father was a U.S. Marine Corps captain. Um, as a child, John hopped around in countries such as Haiti, Nicaragua, uh, some other Central American com- uh, countries. He later was appointed to the Naval Academy at some point in time, but then dropped out. Uh, I think in late 50s, he married uh, Susie Adams, who was a direct descendant of John Adams. The- so, so there's the second one. Crosby has a link back to the founding fathers, and here's another one. So go ahead. Exactly, exactly. Um, and then I believe he had some family members who were career employees of the Pentagon. Uh, Susie's Adams, again, the direct descendant of John Adams, had a father who worked with intelligence operations in Europe, also found at the Pentagon. His sister uh, Rosie worked at the Pentagon. Yes. Yep. Um, And then there was an interesting part that was mentioned that one of his first jobs, this being John Phillips, he was working on a charter fishing boat wherein his co-workers were four retired army generals. Uh, Later, Phillips was located in Havana during Castro's uprising. Uh, Then at some point in time, he found his way out on Sunset Strip. And they basically, uh, I believe what happened was the story is that they were on a Caribbean island, John Phillips. uh, He had met his future wife, Michelle Phillips. And I believe they were supposed to be in a Caribbean island doing acid, dropping LSD or something. And that's when they wrote this first album. But they more or less disappeared. They were on an island. They popped back into L.A. And then uh, their first album, If You Can Believe Your Eyes and Ears, um, happened. Which is a funny thing, too, because, I mean, when you begin to look at all this, and we didn't even point out with the birds all the military parents um, that had gone on, some of them in intelligence, every single person, almost to a person that we're going to talk about here, has a military connection through the generation or their parents above them. But what's funny about John Phillips is here's a guy gains a, a you know an appointment to a naval academy, Um, He's got family members that go back to the founding fathers, a sister and relatives that are going to end up working in the Pentagon, and we're told that he dropped out. Well, I would remind people of a movie called – what's that Mel Gibson movie called? Uh, uh, conspiracy? Theory. Yeah, conspiracy theory oh. or something like that. Conspiracy. Um, in that, there's some lines where he's basically stating flat out that the Grateful Dead are agents, operative agents. And so when we look back on uh, the encoding that goes in a movie and we look at John Phillips, we can always wonder, uh, did he drop out of the Naval Academy or was he actually an operative of some kind assigned to help define the hippie movement and basically drug out 
uh, a generation. But anyhow, I keep mm-hmm. tracking you off. Go ahead. No, no, that's uh, interesting. And then, of course, he had the allegations come out against him by his uh, daughter, Mackenzie Phillips, uh, where she claimed that he had been having uh, sexual relations with her since she was an early teenager and so forth. But just another interesting side note into uh, a rock and roll hero from the 60s. Yeah, not only that, he he apparently had drug charges or something brought against him uh, at one point that should have put him away for a long, long time, and it just didn't happen. It didn't stick. Yeah, a lot of these guys seem to be able to have been able to get around the law at this point in time. Yeah. Uh, next interesting character, of course, is Frank Zappa. He uh, moved to the Laurel Canyon for a brief period in time, and uh, speaking of families belonging to the military industrial complex, his father was Francis Zappa, who was officially a meteorologist at the Edgewood Arsenal headquarters of the uh, Army Chemical Center in Maryland. Um, Edgewood is known to be the Army's manufacturing and testing a facility of uh, chemical weapons. He grew up on a base. Uh, Zappa, at one point in time, met an interesting individual named Herb Cohen. Uh, We'll talk about him later, but this is an individual who's got some strong military ties who managed to make his way out to L.A. in the 50s and began to uh, promote folk bands, uh, promote music venues and so forth. But again, a guy that later on does some strange vacations in the early 60s and so forth. Uh, and then uh, he, at that point in time, um, I don't know if it's in Laurel Canyon or if he moves out there, but he meets Gail Zappa, Adelaide Slotman. Uh, that is the future wife of Frank Zappa. Her father was a nuclear weapons research physicist working with the U.S. Navy. Uh, she went to elementary school, of course, with Jim Morrison she then worked uh, in London at the Office of Naval Research and Development and managed to move back to New York City. And along with another uh, woman, um, they wanted to be groupies in L.A. So they gave up this career with the uh, intelligence, uh, Navy intelligence, and <laughs> decided to head out to L.A. and be groupies and so forth. Um, and then she became involved on the Sunset strip scene as well so any any thoughts on zappa and you yeah think? well zappa is like the hub he's an early hub of everything that goes on at laurel laurel canyon what's funny about zappa is not only did he discover and bring to the fore some musicians that everyone's familiar with like uh, steve Vai. i think he found steve Vai when he was like 16 or something but mm-hmm. characters like alice cooper but you see, Zappa was kind of a pro-war, anti-hippie guy who was actually busy in Laurel Canyon f- fabricating from scratch not only what the hippie movement would be, but what it would look like, uh, the clothes they would wear, this kind of thing. And his uh, place in Laurel Canyon, which was called, uh, what was it, the Log Cabin or something like that? Yeah, yes, yeah, um, yeah, it's right next to this uh, military industrial complex place. What, what's the place called? Do you remember? It's called uh, Lonesome Mountain Laboratory, I believe. Uh, Look, Lookout. Lookout Mountain, yes. Yeah, so Lookout Mountain Lab is right there, and it's even rumored that there may be tunnels between Zappa's place and this other place. And uh, actually, I'll let you break down. Um, so all these future hippies and future rock stars with no musical talent and no music industry to speak of in this area have moved to Laurel Canyon. Zappa's kind of the one of the central hubs, and he's living next door to Lookout Mountain Labs. Can you break down what Lookout Mountain Labs was? Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting spot. It was more or less a uh, film studio that was on the top of this Laurel Canyon area. Uh, some of the official knowledge regarding the history of the uh, installation. It was built in 1941 as a World War II air defense center. 
Um, after 1947, the installation was converted into an Air Force film studio. I believe the official uh, I believe the official reason for taxpayer money being spent on this installation was they needed the Air Force needed a place to study atomic weapon testing and then the films and the stills that were taken during these atomic bomb tests. Uh, the installation included a full stage, two screen rooms. It had the ability to process 16 and 35 millimeter motion picture films. Had a animation and editorial department, 17 climate controlled film vaults, helicopter pad, bomb shelters. How uh, many? Had, how many directors? Uh, no, like some 250. Yeah, 200. So they retained 250 directors direct from Hollywood, and this place was. Um, off the grid, pretty much, in terms of, you know, it's not like a normal naval base or a normal facility where, you know, there's a sign outside. This was totally undercover, and it had a lot to do with the supposed nukes. And um, on, on another episode I may cover, uh, in my view, nukes are a complete hoax. There are no such thing as nuclear weapons, and there is no such thing as nuclear energy either. Um, and for a lot of people, that's going to be hard to hear for the first time. But I may do a show to kind of break down where this was going. And in any ways, this lookout laboratory, who's in the heart of the beginning of 60s rock and roll and the hippie movement, is sitting there with 250 directors uh, directly linked up and involved with CIA to Hollywood and <laughs> apparently has underground power passages to Zappa's place. So anyhow, I don't know how bad I've twisted your road, but go ahead. <laughs> no, no, that's an important part. I think even uh, Jared Leto, I think I read, had recently purchased that. So be curious to see what comes out of that in the coming years. Uh, next guy that's kind of on the hit list here of individuals who had some military ties, Stephen Stills. Stephen Stills was one of the initial musicians that formed Buffalo Springfield. His father was officially an engineer and builder, spent time in Illinois, Texas, Louisiana, Florida, Costa Rica, Panama. So, again, you can kind of get the sense that there was some consulting done on behalf of uh, certain named agencies. Uh, he was enrolled at a military academy in Florida when he was younger, possibly spent some time in Central American Florida as, Florida as a child. He uh, moved to New York City and then finally moved to Laurel Canyon in 1966. One of the interesting things that uh, is in his official biographies is the fact that he would uh, speak of being in the jungles in Vietnam in the early 1960s. And again, we had mentioned uh, the research officially U.S. troops weren't in Vietnam until 1965. But of course, there was some consulting done, some unofficial activity that was possibly happening in that area of the world early 60s. But typically those claims that Stephen Stills made regarding his involvement in the Vietnam War, they were typically dismissed as drug-induced exaggerations. But here we have another guy who is going to be a rocker and a hippie and all these things, but here's the second guy who was inducted into the military at a high level and then the trail kind of goes cold, like he quit or what happened. It's not really clear. Mm -hmm. And again, are we looking at someone who was actually co-opted into, you know, some Delta force or some CIA type operation where he would mirror the kind of conspiracy ideas that are brought forth in the, in the Mel Gibson movie conspiracy, where these guys are actually operatives that cross borders with very little trouble because they're rock stars. They go just about anywhere they want. Um, but anyhow, keep, keep pushing. Yeah, Buffalo Springfield, they had a really interesting history, too, a very fast and furious start. They, uh, there's a story that Neil Young drove from Canada. They, he had met Neil 
or uh, Stephen Stills at one point as a child or when he was a teenager drove there. They had this miraculous encounter in the downtown L.A. area. <laughs> uh, you know, there was like a U-turn with a car involved. It's a very, very probably fantastic story for most people to believe that's actually how the two managed to meet. But what I thought was interesting, according again to the official biographies, this group was formed on April 6th of 1966. Uh, they were suddenly playing their first appearance at Hollywood's prestigious venue, The Troubadour. So again, this band is just brought together, no real experience playing together, but they're suddenly inserted into the public limelight. Uh, four days later, they then uh, opened for the Birds South California tour. Right. Uh, then they did a six-week gig on the strip at the Whiskey, which the Whiskey has some ties to an individual we'll talk about later. Uh, which wrapped up on June 20th, 1966, and then suddenly they were opening on July 25 for the Rolling Stones at the Hollywood Bowl. So for a group who basically didn't play together in April, suddenly opened up for the Rolling Stones in July, it's a fairly quick uh, acceleration to fame, I think. Right, well, there's, there's no doubt. And not only that, I mean, there's no getting away from that there really is no big music industry in the part of the world they moved to, um, L.A., at the time. And instantly, these guys are getting signed. And in the case of the Birds, you know, what we see is they're not even writing their own music. They're taking mm -hmm. Pete Seeger songs. They're taking Dylan songs um, to become number one hits. Um, but... Just to draw a line for people, as we go through this, there's going to be mention of so many of these people who went to school together, knew each other, met in some kind of fortuitous way. But let's use an example here. Um, most people listening to this probably are not old enough to remember the Kent State shootings, which happened in the Vietnam era. Uh, May 4th, of course, 4th being the coded number for death. May 4th, 1970, supposedly, here it is again, four people were killed uh, on the Kent State University campus by National Guardsmen. But here's the crazy thing. Um, people will remember that uh, one of the band on and off band members of the people we've been talking about here, Neil Young, wrote a song called Ohio. Um, Ten Soldiers and Nixon's Coming, We're Finally on Our Own. You guys remember the song. Well, he wrote it about the supposed shooting by National Guard troops of four students at Kent State. But here's the kicker. Neil Young wrote the song. Here's all the people that are famous rockers that were there. Joe Walsh from the Eagles was there. Mm -hmm. Jerry Casale from Devo was there. But it's funny when you look up the references to this, because in some cases they act like the whole band Devo was at Kent State and saw the shooting. But here's the real killer. Chrissy Hind from The Pretenders was there. And they have a whole kind of statement from her. Oh, I heard tat-a-tat-tat-tat. It sounded like fireworks. And then we're screaming, effing people were killed. Um, all these famous rockers just happened to be at the Kent State shooting, which I am calling flat out another false flag. Um, and I encourage people to go back and do a Google image search because you will see that there is a handful of staged imagery that was used to push that. And it was, you know, in Life magazine and all the big ones at the time. But I, uh, sorry about that, James. I know I twisted your, <laughs> twisted your line there, but I just wanted to demonstrate to people that it's beyond possibility um, the coincidences that go on here. So go ahead. Well, that's just it. The, all the coincidences. I mean, I think at this point in time, it's safe to say that this is the probability of all of these things happening randomly and for the uh, the spirit of humanity and the peace and anti-war movement. It just it doesn't it's, add yeah, up. It's nil. It's non-existent. You know? Yep.
Yep. So the next uh, candidate on the Laurel Canyon tour is the the big one, Jim Morrison. Uh, of course, he was with the Doors. They released a uh, self-titled Doors, I think, in 1966, 1967. Uh, some of the facts regarding Jim Morrison, as previously mentioned, he was the son to Admiral George Stephen Morrison, who was of uh, the Gulf of Tonkin infamy. Started he, basically started Vietnam. He did. Yep. Uh, he went to a naval kindergarten with uh, Adelaide Slotman, who was later. Frank Zappa's wife, Gail Zappa. <laughs> of course. Uh, he attended a high school in Virginia with John Phillips and Cass Elliott of the Mamas and Papas. Of course. And then he uh, – some of the official biographies always try, have a term reconciling this, but initially he was kind of a clean-cut, academic, conservative child. He arrived later on the sunset scene, Laurel Canyon Sea, with like a complete band, rock star persona. Um, and an impressive collection of songs that he allegedly wrote over a three-year time period. Um, again, I think Jim Morrison has actually said in some of his interviews that he was not able to play instruments and really had no musical training, but was somehow able to create this uh, catalog of famous songs that all of us are probably familiar with over a three-year period. Right, and I would point out, you know, anytime you see a movie like, uh, I forget the, the director, the famous director's name who did the movie The Doors, but what they're doing is creating the narrative that they want the public to regurgitate over time. This goes into biographies, it gets spouted out in movies, and it creates this false construct uh, to cover for what these people really were. Um, anyhow, I don't want to get you off track here with Jim, so go ahead. Yeah, uh, well... Again, it's just an individual who just more or less appears to be an actor. He was placed on the scene, had his big hit album. Of course, he was kind of a bad boy of rock and roll. I mean, I remember in high school, I had friends who had posters of Jim Morrison in their bedrooms and so forth. I mean, right. Just uh, he was a hero to a lot of kids that I grew up with. Uh, not, not not only that. Let me interject here too. Yeah. There is also the story that he was in college in in. in you know, studying for the film industry. That's the claim that is made in these movies and other things. Although when I was researching him, I saw very little on this, but there's one key thing that you had handed me that I think is critical here. As we have stated, Jim Morrison's father was an admiral. He's the guy responsible for the false flag attack that started the Vietnam War. Um, and actually there's two events there um, that are actually recognized on the record now as false flags. But Jim Morrison allegedly died in Paris on July 3rd, 1971. This is the same day his father gave the keynote speech decommissioning the aircraft carrier USS Bonham Richard, which was one of the ships involved in the Gulf of Tonkin. So there it is again. You're kind of a cult, you know, date games being played. Um, anyhow, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. That's a very curious coincidence again to have it on the same day uh the next interesting note this is considered by official biographies of the laurel canyon sing scene and also some of the more alternative research that the first death blow to the laurel canyon scene was considered to be the monterey pop festival of june 16th through the 18th 1967 this was a john phillips terry melcher inspired concept that brought many of the laurel canyon acts away from small venues and into the massive sports arenas that would later happen in the late 60s and 70s. Uh, lineup featured acts like the Birds, the Mamas and the Papas, Buffalo Springfield, who we've discussed, also featured uh, individuals such as Jimi Hendrix and other artists. But it was considered the um, kind of the epiphany of the Laurel Canyon scene. Again, you had most of these bands playing in these questionably financed clubs, such as the Whiskey A Go-Go on the Sunset Strip. Now they're suddenly a large pop 
uh, presentation of all these bands, and they're more or less injected into mainstream uh, media and so forth. And, and given, you know, round-the-clock radio time, and, and actually this event that you're talking about almost in a way – uh, really is a kind of a milestone marker for this all gets kicked up to a whole other level um, at Monterey. And not only that, Janis Joplin was there. I think it's safe to say that the Monterey Festival was completely staged and designed to do what it did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that kind of talks, that kind of goes into what we were talking about. There's a couple of ideas of some beta testing happening here in the early 60s in this specific canyon area of la uh i know you had talked about the idea of hippie fashion as well as uh introduction of drugs do you want to kind of talk about that it's pretty interesting well well, sure you know frank zappa they described like uh, one of the places he lived i think it was log cabin where the actual look of the inside of this place and again we're talking about a guy who's pro-war has clear military ties is kind of the godfather to everything that's going on in laurel canyon and you can see what's funny about zappa is he makes all this music finds all these famous people but can anyone name a frank zappa song unless you're a hardcore music person you're gonna understand that he didn't really create anything in terms of music that changed the scope of america or the world in any way Having said that, the inside of his house was like a prototype for what the hippie movement was going to be. Even in his early music, you can hear him referring to the kind of hippies being thought of as dirty, long hair, unwashed, scantily clad. And I've forgotten, James, there's also a relationship there with either a girlfriend or a wife who has a clothes place on the strip that is actually the the earliest known prototype of what hippie clothing will look like. Sure, sure. That leads into the whole Vito, Palakis, and the Freaks. A very interesting portion of Laurel Canyon history. This is a individual who is kind of a precursor to Charles Manson. He had a lot of the same similarities. He was kind of a charismatic individual, an individual who probably didn't indulge in drugs but had all of his his followers and his uh, his group of followers indulge in. He was always in control and so forth. He had moved into the uh, L.A. area in the late 50s and 60s, kind of had a spotty background as well. Uh, the interesting thing about him is that his wife um, opened a – a hippie clothing store ahead of the time. And those were the very vibrant. Yeah. Before hippies existed. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And it appears as though it rolled out in this fashion. So he's got a wife who's got the clothing store. They've got their very charismatic leaders. They bring in some uh, youths that are probably lost or um, kind of feeling alone in the world or whatnot, embracing them with sort of a father figure. He creates this group called the Freaks. Uh, the Freaks are known to be a huge hit on the Sunset Strip. So there's this idea that when these bands such as the Birds, Jim Morrison, Buffalo Springfield, when they're on various stages on Sunset Strip, a lot of the people aren't necessarily going to watch these bands. They're going to watch Vito and the Freaks. And so you've got this group of people who are scantily – women who are scantily dressed, very bright colors, doing these outrageous dance moves on the dance floor – while the David Crosby's, the John Phillips and so forth are in the background singing. So you've got this idea of this hippie culture that's more or less being test in prototypes, the right? Beta beta tested. And not only yeah. that, this guy, uh how do you say his name again? Vitatus? Yeah, it's it's uh I don't know how you pronounce his proper name, but it's Vito 
Palakis. Palakis, that's his uh, name that he's referred to in a lot of the magazines and books and so forth. So, so this guy moves to L.A. after serving in the military, of course. He was a merchant marine. He was, yes. Yep, and merchant marine. It's not easy to kind of uncover what he did or what his rank was either. Right. Uh, you can – it's interesting because when you listen to some of David McGowan's work – again, this is the author – when he first researched this, he said it on numerous interviews that he had a hard time finding any history on this Vito and the Freaks character. Uh, but once the book that he had published and some of the PDFs and articles that he was posting to his website, suddenly there was like Wikipedia pages being created and so forth. Right. So, And, uh, and yeah. of all the people, he seems like the total just kind of double agent guy where even people uh, who should be at these clubs to hear the birds or other bands are actually showing up to hear him, but no one's ever heard of the freaks or any of the music they made. They were there prototyping and beta testing what the hippie movement would be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think even in the official document of Laurel Canyon, it's another book that was written, I think in 2008 and I forget the author's name Hillman or something like that, but that's, uh, there's mention that Vito and the freaks were in Iowa, which really isn't too far away from where I'm at. So you can imagine, Corn country, 1965, small stadiums, small stages, and so forth. You have the birds, and then you have Vito and the Free. So he's this band is performing in across Midwest United States. They're rolling out the hippie idea, the hippie dance, the hippie clothes, and so forth. I mean, somebody had to finance this stuff. I mean, it's not like these people just right. magically received uh, cash. Of course, and and this is also kind of where we draw the line uh, to the whole psychedelic movement, right? This is where mm -hmm. LSD is kind of injected into this culture that's being developed. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, When I was going through the anti-war uh, structure, it was interesting that as things started to get more or less serious in mid-1965, early 1965 in Berkeley, I think it was – let me find the date here. October 15th, 1965, there were four large anti-Vietnam protests occurring in four separate cities. Uh, at this point in time, there's a large protest march occurring in Oakland with some 15,000 protesters. And suddenly now we introduce Ken Casey's Merry Pranksters, make a possible appearance in the anti-war movement. Of course, Ken Casey is the famous LSD uh, proponent who was distributing freely, uh, driving across the country, him and his Merry Pranksters um, basically advertising the use of LSD as so, a form of conscious control. Right, and it should be stated um, that – this is the period of time, and it's kind of a broad thing, where the military and the CIA and other places like this were exper experimenting with LSD. They actually were openly funded at some points to do these experiments. But the thing about LSD is this. You know, if you look back to the 50s and you say, well, why weren't all the drugs here? Well, there was some pot here and there. But you see, you can get a seed and grow pot. LSD is not like that. You cannot get your hands on LSD unless you have a chemist and a lab somewhere that's going to produce it. And what we see is, is that the LSD that drugged out so much of this generation who would have opposed for the most part, the Vietnam war and other things about uh, what the political leadership in this country was doing. Um, this drug came directly out of places like Berkeley. And uh, what's the other guy, the poster boy for LSD? Uh, uh, Timothy Leary. Yeah, Timothy Leary. So here's another college professor who's basically telling the whole generation, because he's a voice now and he's famous, to uh, 
what was it? Tune in, turn off, drop, drop out, tune in and turn on or something like that. Basically telling kids to drop out of school and start to do drugs. My point is this. There is a reason why 65 forward, the drugs hit so heavily into this counter culture lifestyle that was being developed by the military industrial complex and the CIA. It's because they created the drugs and put them into that community to have an effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the key figures in all of this is mentioned in the book is too. His name is uh, Augustus Owsley Stanley III, another interesting character uh, in the whole 1960s counterculture scene. He was the son to Stanley II, a military officer during World War II, and he was later a government attorney in Washington, D.C. Uh, his grandfather was a U.S. House of Representative, a governor of Kentucky and so forth. Mother, uh, his he was a niece or she was a niece of uh, William Osley, the governor of Kentucky. This is an individual who kind of got wrapped up and was placed into military academies while younger. And then the official story is, is that he rebelled and dropped out of these schools and so forth. But there's missing periods of time. He uh, attended the University of Virginia. Then he enlisted in the United States Air Force. He works uh, as an electronics specialist with uh, radio intelligence and radar. At some point in time, he moved to L.A., just happened to move out there, um, and he was employed by JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratories. <laughs> um, and the thing that I thought was really interesting, so again, you got a guy that's kind of got quite a bit of background in electronics and so forth. He moves to, to Berkeley in 1963, and officially he tries LSD for the first time. Now, this is in a New York Times or a Wall Street Journal obit that I had found online. And this obit goes on to claim that because he enjoyed this LSD so much, he spent three weeks in the university's library pouring over chemistry journals. So this individual is able to spend three weeks basically cramming all this chemistry <laughs> and figured out how to mass produce LSD at that point in time. Uh, in 1965, he met Ken Kesey, who we just previously discussed, and through Kesey, he meets the Grateful Dead. So now you've got this individual, again, with ties to JPL, uh, the military. He's acting as the Grateful Dead's financer, sound engineer, and providing thousands and mil- or actually millions of tabs of free LSD to um, all of these kids in, uh, in California at this point in time. It even mentions that... This individual, I think, produced four million hits, and he gave most of it away freely. So, holy smokes! So you got to wonder again. You know, if you're into making money, I guess, I guess officially the idea is that he wanted to increase consciousness of his generation, but somebody had to pay. Somebody had to provide the chemicals and so forth, and the means to make that many uh, volumes of drugs. And then he was also instrumental to the lead up into the events that um, was the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967, which again threw the hippie lifestyle into kind of mass media attention. Uh, an interesting character. And again, it's, it's a guy who's actually more involved with the Grateful Dead and that whole scene. Um, I think I even read at one point in time, he and the Grateful Dead had done some some preliminary uh, acts or something like that in Watts prior to the Watts riots. Right, right. And they actually that's where they had LSD was being tested in that community uh, when the when the Watts riots happened. So it was all totally hooked together. And it, I mean, it gets crazier for people who kind of do research about how screwed up the ruling class is. There's even Rothschilds involved as producers around this music. I think one of the guys was Paul Rothschild. I know he had to do with uh, Janis Joplin, but another point 
point of interest from the Monterey Pop Festival, which was clearly designed to rocket all these counterculture rock stars up to the next level, is two of them died in the 27 Club, right? I mean, uh, mm-hmm. Jimi Hendrix was there, and I think Janis Joplin was 27. Was she one of those 27 Club people? I don't remember. I don't um, recall either. Yeah, but they both have these kind of hoax uh, occult, you know, weird deaths like Prince and Bowie did. Um, but to, to cap it off a little more, uh, there are certain members of this community, like Crosby is a good example. Um, Crosby is a special person uh, because of his bloodline, among other things. Mm-hmm. And he comes from a very wealthy family. It is very difficult to nail down exactly what that bloodline is. But it's pretty clear that his bloodline probably goes back to the founding fathers. But to put a fine point on this, as I was reading through uh, accounts of all these women always wanting to get pregnant by Crosby, I kind of laughed because the guy is a troll. Mm-hmm. Um, his personality is nothing special, and he's kind of a fat, bald, drugged-out-looking character. It's not like he's going to be a, a, a female magnet. But uh, as I read this, I remembered uh, Melissa Etheridge, who is supposed to be gay and, and be married to a woman. Did you know that Melissa Etheridge sought out Crosby to be the biologic father of her two children? No, I admit, no, I don't remember that. Yeah, um, I forget the names of the kids, but that kind of underscores what we're talking about in this very bizarre community of people. Um, here's this guy who's nothing special to look at. He's kind of repulsive in a way. He's got that walrus mustache. He's always overweight, and all these women want to have his babies. Mm-hmm. Um, and that gives more credence to the fact that there is a perceived specialness to that man's genes um although to look at him you wouldn't know it um but anyhow i think i yanked us way off the path where were we yeah no that's a it's interesting he's another individual again as you mentioned with a military background but i found it interesting that his father uh was a military educated individual but he got involved with the new york stock exchange after school and oh, then, was was that the guy who who did all this when he was like 16 uh actually that's another individual that's one of the uh financiers of the birds early act uh yeah we can get to yeah, him here in a yeah you got to talk about this guy because it's it's literally unbelievable to consider that you know a 15 16 year old kid's doing it but anyhow i'll let you go down the path i don't want to shoo you in the wrong direction oh no no problem but he actually ended up this again being david crosby's father he was involved in hollywood too i imagine he would have been involved with this this laboratory on the top of Laurel Canyon. He uh, did some interesting documentary work in Brazil, Honduras, Brazil. Again, these are all very crucial countries during the Cold War of the 50s and so forth. But um, at the end of the day, he worked for Roger Corman, which is kind of an interesting guy. I know a little bit about him, but he's famous for his B-horror films in the 50s. And so you've got this trained, uh, trained military individual who specializes in photography and so forth and he's doing these b horror films so i i'd be curious down the road to do some research on some of those movies and see what types of themes are being presented and so forth um corman's kind of funny because he's so famous and most of the work he has done has been cheesy b movies mm -hmm. but he was really known for putting big-breasted women uh, without their shirts on in his movies for a lot of it and it's kind of funny when you consider these rich 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 people like uh crosby's father who was a military intelligence operative and working in cinematography 
cinematography having anything to do with these kind of low budget B roll films that Corman was known for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, the other individual that you were talking about uh, with the Wall Street tie, that was Naomi Hershorn, and uh, oh, yeah. again to official biographies and so forth, she placed a five thousand dollar investment for a five percent share in the birds. So basically, again, going back to the idea of the birds being a fabricated band, there's no real musician, musician, uh, musical experience between the five actors slash musicians. They needed equipment. They needed guitars, bass guitars, drum sets, and so forth. So this this Naomi at that point in time put 5000 bucks into it. I did some research on her, and a fantastic story again. Her father was Joseph Hershorn, um, an individual who apparently had age 15, managed a job on Wall Street. Uh, by age 16, he had launched his career as a stockbroker financier, which is, uh, I don't know, I can't even imagine that today. No, I, I guess it's safe to say Hershorn must be a Jewish name, right? Uh, that I don't know. I didn't look into the background on that. But apparently, when he started at 16, by the year, by his age 18, he had acquired enough money that he basically acquired these two rare etchings and has, began his career as a collector of mass quantities of art. And then in 1966, he basically passed off this collection of art to become part of the Smithsonian. So just a kind of an interesting side character in all of this. Um, Well, what's weird is the two etchings he acquires at age 18 are Durer. And mm -hmm. anyone who knows anything about alchemy and occult uh, will know that the Durer etchings are a big deal um, in their kind of occult encoded – I don't even know how to describe it. They're just – all the things he did were encoded heavily – with uh, the very things that drive the community that we're talking about here and the secret societies. Mm-hmm. So he did that at age 18. Yeah, that's a, quite, the, quite the story, quite the success, success story, no doubt. All right, man. So where do we go? It's so hard to, you know, do it. sitting here trying to communicate this out to a bunch of people who may have heard of very little of it. It's so difficult because there's so much that you have to get your arms around. So, I mean, where do we go forward from here? Uh, just two other individuals who I thought were interested in the background of Laurel Canyon. Uh, one being Herb Cohen. This was the uh, future business manager of Frank Zappa. So, Official biographies again, uh, former U.S. Marine who moved to L.A. in 1954 to begin promoting folk music groups. Uh, in 1956 or 1959, this individual suddenly began to open up clubs on the Sunset Strip in L.A. Um, and this is the part that I thought was funny. In 1959, he took a break from L.A. and he vacationed in these countries, Cuba, Egypt, Algiers, Europe, the Middle East. Uh, he was a, even in official biographies. There's talk that he was running guns a bit for um, – I guess they would be candidates for anti-CIA sentiment, but again, who knows what's actually going on there. Then he returned to L.A. in 1963, and he gave Zappa access to the clubs, to Vito and the Freaks, and all of the uh, benefits of playing on the Strip. So it's, uh, what's funny about this whole thing to me is, you know, you think about this person who loaned the birds five grand uh, for a five percent share in the profits. Well, you know. If you did that with any other people, you'd basically be giving five grand away for nothing because there should have been no indication that the birds were ever going to be worth anything except the fact 
that they were being set up to be successful. So this Herb Cohen guy comes and sets these clubs up on the strip. It's the ultimate insider information Mm -hmm. because they're going to need these clubs to get the music out. Uh, There's no real music industry around rock music at the time that this is going on. So these people have the ultimate insider's information. Uh, Go set up a club here and you'll be filthy, filthy rich by the time, you know, the 70s and 80s roll by uh, in the same way that the people who financed the birds. Um, Mm -hmm. Anyone who financed a band anywhere knows that there's a 98% chance the band will never be worth anything. Yet this person (laughs) happened to know that these musical not geniuses were worth investing in and made mm-hmm. a fortune, uh, mm-hmm. presumably on a 5% share. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and then the second individual who's interesting to mention, Elmer Valentine, Edward Elmer Valentine, uh, he was a former Chicago vice cop who was indicted for extortion. It's alleged that he had some mafia ties and Chicago gangs and so forth, but he managed to avoid prosecution and conviction, moved to L.A. in January of 1964 and happened to open up the doors to the Whiskey A Go-Go nightclub, which, again, is (laughs) prominent in all of these bands, successes and so forth. Uh, Interesting to note, within a month of the club's opening, Life magazine had written about it. Uh, Jack Parr, a famous 60s commentary, had broadcast from the club. And then celebrities such as Steve McQueen and Jane Mansfield were often spotted visiting the Whiskey at Go-Go, of course, bringing in tourists and so forth. So, Right. So, I mean, how are you ever going to fail when you have that kind of media at your disposal? So Life magazine, for those of you who are not old enough to remember, was a big damn deal. It was probably one of the premier magazines on this world. And so within a month of him opening up the Whiskey A Go-Go, which is going to be such a iconic name through all of rock and roll history moving forward, he gets the insider information to open this. Life magazine writes about it. And all of a sudden you've got Jack Parr, Steve McQueen, James Mansfield all going to your club. There's no possible way these endeavors can fail at that level. Yeah, interesting too with Life. I think that was a magazine that actually – prove that Paul is still with us. I think that magazine was the piece that when all those theories were that Paul had died, Paul McCartney again from the Beatles, late 60s, I think Life magazine was the first that had a exclusive interview to show that, yes, he is still with us. Right, and I think they're actually showing the fake Paul in Ireland or somewhere on the cover. I've forgotten. I'd have to go back and look. But it goes to show you just how ultra-controlled information is. Um, so here's this American magazine um, lying to the world, telling everyone that the Paul you see now is the Paul we always had. Um, you know, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when that phone call happens. You know, know. Who, who calls Life magazine and says, uh, you know, we need some help. Run this. Uh, just how does that work? Crazy. Just crazy. Mm-hmm. And Jack Parr, I mean, do you know anything about Jack Parr? I don't. I think I've seen clips on television and so forth with some acts, but I don't know a lot about him. You know, I'd go into them, but we've got so many people that we're going to be spinning heads by the time we get through this. But, I mm-hmm. mean, there's, there's no getting away from uh, – all, all this is so far beyond coincidence that I – from my personal observation point of having gone through all this, um, there is no one that is cited 
in history around the events we're talking about that were not part of the kind of psychological operation that we call rock and roll, that we call the hippie movement, Woodstock, all of it. Um, you know, it's a crazy thing is we all look at Woodstock and we remember it in the way we're supposed to. We remember the movie that just happened to be shot. We remember the music, the bands, the history that we've been handed. But I started to think about Max, ya- uh, Max Yasger, the guy who supposedly rented um, the the fields to where Woodstock was going to happen. And as as I got to looking at him, it became very apparent that there's a reason why Max Yasger was covered in Rolling Stone when he died. You know, here's this dairy farmer who's all through rock and roll history just because he rented this space. And it's, the story of that is funny because at first it was like 50 bucks was going to happen for each day or something. But the truth is he got 75 grand um, for letting people – basically trash three fields or something for three days or four days. But here's the kicker. If you look into Max Yasger's background, first of all, he's Jewish immigrant. And there's never more than a stone's throw away from any of this from Jewishness. Um, The Jewishness is always at the top of all of this. But he went to New York University and studied real estate law. And at the time of Woodstock, his son Sam was the assistant district attorney in Manhattan. And between the two of them, uh, finagled this whole kind of festival that had never been done before to happen. And it required a district attorney and it required someone who understood real estate law. So even the very dairy farmer who you think was just happened to be there was clearly a set piece, you know, serving his part in this massive play we call history. All right, welcome back to the second hour of Crow 777 Radio Podcast. Um, I know that this is so much information that we're throwing at everybody, but it's critical to understand what it all means. And uh, without anything further here, uh, I'm going to kick it right back over to you, James, to keep the ball rolling. Okay. Uh, we had mentioned earlier that the Laurel Canyon seemed, seemed to have two ends to it. There was the initial pop festival, which basically took the acts out of the Sunset Strip music scene and placed them into a larger limelight, again, with, as you would mentioned, radio uh, financing and so forth. The uh, second part of all of this Laurel Canyon business really happens in 1968 with the introduction of Charles Manson. Uh, the document that I read states that Manson came to the canyon in search of Vito Palakis, again, Vito of Vito and the Freaks fame. Uh, Vito had apparently left the scene, and I think he had gone to the Caribbean islands. I could be mistaken on that, but he left the country at this point in time. So Manson more or less became the new veto of the canyon. Um, he was very charismatic. He tended to attract uh, young girls, young men that seemed to be kind of lost, um, looking for a father figure and so forth. Uh, everybody kind of knows who Charles Manson is, but uh, when he got to the canyon, he spent some time with Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. Um, his music style impressed individuals such as Neil Young and Mama Cass. He actually recorded a number of songs in Dennis Wilson's studio. Uh, the idea of Charles Manson and the actual death of Sharon Tate, Tate yep. was that he was starting Helter Skelter. And this is per Vincent Buglioso's book, Helter Skelter, that he had planned a murder spree that would spark an apocalyptic race war, wherein the eventual outcome would be a group of people who could take control of the world 
by allowing the others to more or less not be able to govern themselves. And so and, people understand Helter Skelter, of course, is directly related to a Beatles album. It and, is. And the song Helter Skelter. So there is no separating what we're about to talk about here, Manson. And I will preface everything we're going to say about Manson by stating categorically there is no living human being named Charles Manson. There is no person sitting in a jail anywhere named Charles Manson. He is an actor. He is a stage set. He is a stage piece. And everything we're going to talk about here, nobody died. Nobody got hurt. It was completely staged, for lack of a better word, uh, false flag. And I have done extensive research all the way back uh, into the late 80s and 90s uh, on Helter Skelter, the book, and everything surrounding this. So keep going forward, James. Mm. 